Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Your Own Personal Beatles with me, Robin Allender. And my name is Jack Pelling. How are you diddling? I'm all right, yeah. I've had a, a very busy week. Um, cool. And all is well. It was someone's birthday, I think. It was my birthday, yes. Brian Epstein's uh... birthday the other day, wasn't it? Basically. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Um... But no, happy birthday, mate. No, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. is he got, has he got the same birthday as me? 19th? Uh, no, so yeah, I'm the 16th. So. Okay, cool, cool, cool. There we go. Yeah. Classic Virgo. Yeah. Is that a thing? I don't know. Well, happy birthday, Brian. Anyway. (laughs) One thing that has changed quite dramatically in my life over from doing this podcast is uh, the amount of Beatles tat that I get around (laughs) my birthday. Um, And I feel a little bit like Ringo, but uh, do feel free not to give me Beatles tat next year. (laughs) No, I'm joking. I I actually love the Beatles tat. I've got um, Beatles Monopoly. I've got a... uh, a rubber duck dressed as Paul from Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I've got, um, I mean, uh, I, I got an Abbey Road jigsaw for Christmas I, and I loved it. Well, I mean, that is a superb present. I mean, there's a lot of sky. Yeah, there is a lot of sky and a lot of very dark trees. Hmm. And also my copy of it had a, a piece missing, which was incredibly frustrating when I finished it. But, um, <laughs> I think we might talk about that in episode one. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of uh, of going back to the beginning, we've got an, an email here from Adam Walden, who hmm. uh, says, Good afternoon, Jack and Robin. I've recently discovered your podcast through Robin's Moon Underwater pod, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it, he says. I'm working my way up from Ep1 and was just listening to your episode with Jen Roberts and Kevin Eldon. Your conversation about rattling Beatles songs, in inverted inverted commas, that's the verb to rattle, um, (laughs) jogged my memory to a Beatles pastiche done by comedy legend Peter Serafinovitz. Oh, yes, this um, is great. Who I've always wanted to get on this, if you're listening, Peter. It's got Sarah Pascoe in that video. It's I Will, isn't it? It's a parody of I Will. I mean, he's done a lot of Beatles stuff, yeah. Yeah, So the one that he's referring to here, he says, you may have heard this before, but if you haven't, I would strongly recommend giving it a full listen. He nails the voice, sound effects, and those lovely lines that deliberately break the rhyming conventions at the end of each phrase. Mm. A superb bit of business. Anyway, must get back to work. Thanks for all the top-quality Beatles chat. But the one that he's talking about is the one where... um, it's the middle section of a day in life. Ah, but, right. But um, at the point where he gets off the bus, it just carries on and describes the whole rest of his day. It's <laughs> oh, 20 great. minutes long. That's amazing. Um, which that's I heard really it was on, nice. yeah, I heard it on another a podcast recent, relatively recently. That sort of one where um, American nerds fawn over each other's <laughs> podcasts. I can't remember what it's called. The Sycophant cast or something. Um, uh, but that's definitely worth... Um, Oh, yeah, sure, sure, listen to that. The, the I Will one as well is very, very funny as well. See, you... I don't know if I know that. Oh, it's very good. But That's he used to do a section called Ringo Remembers on, uh, <laughs> yeah. on, on his sketch show, which is absolutely brilliant, and he nails every single one of them. Yeah. Never seen anyone do all four of them so perfectly. Yeah. 
Speaking of Moon Underwater, I did a live performance of the Moon Underwater podcast last night in Chiswick, and there were two personal Beatles fans who came along and said hi after, which was Joss and Rufus. So it was really nice to meet you both, and thanks for coming along and, you know, just generally assuaging the anxiety I have about this podcast, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> really nice oh, folks, yeah. I'm coming down to the Moon Underwater for the first time this Sunday. Oh, so brilliant. Maybe cool. see, see you there. Yes, well, you'll, you'll <laughs> see me there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll get my money back. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and talking about the people that have been getting in touch, I know last week uh, in our episode with John Bradley, we talked about one of the original things in our first episode, which was the the CIA um, oh, yeah. conspiracy theory of the Beatles mm. um, not existing. And a few people got in touch to ask if we had heard the podcast Winds of Wind of Change, yeah. which is about the sort of 80s hair metal um, German uh, band who the C, apparently the C, I won't give anything away, mm. but um, exactly what we said about the Beatles, yeah. where it was uh, an exercise in sort of soft power that helped bring down the Berlin Wall with, uh, with power ballads. Yeah. Um, scorpions, and it's really fascinating. It? Have scorpions, yeah. 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 Um, I'm a few episodes into that, oh, so amazing. thanks to everyone who sent it to us. It really goes down some good rabbit holes. It's a little bit like, um, you know, those American podcasts are like, so it's Tuesday and right. I'm in a diner with, let's call him Oliver, sort yeah. of thing, which is, can be a little bit great. <laughs> but once you, once you get used to that, it's really weird. Ah. So, uh, and thank you to... Um, Long-term listeners Desmond and Molly, the aptly named Desmond oh, and Molly, nice. who sent me that. They're oh, also yeah, the... a baby, so oh, uh, congratulations. We heard about their wedding last year. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, thank you very much for everyone who's got in touch. Mm. If you want to get in touch with us to share your personal Beatles or bring anything to our attention, you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact or just drop me an email. Why don't you? At jack at homespunsounds.com um, or write us a five-star review which is a really nice way to get in touch because uh, you know it's good for the old ratings yeah so um thank you very much for all of those and um we'll crack on with this week's episode which is a sort of another podcast collab is that as the kids say that we we're dropping mm. with uh, the beatles books podcast uh, with joe wisby yeah brilliant chat with joe he's just such a lovely bloke and such a nice presence online and he wears his very very extensive learning very lightly he's so he's so knowledgeable but he's so interesting to talk to and obviously knows a great deal about the books and so it's just really interesting to talk about how the narrative has changed different perspectives on books kind of some of the stranger books he's come across and some of the kind of classic ones. We obviously touch on Revolution in the Head and Tune In and Beatles 66 by Steve Turner, which is a brilliant book, and Many Years From Now. Um, so, yeah, get your reading list and enjoy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah so we'll, we'll post the bibliography of uh, recommended further reading. Mm. And, uh, yeah, go and, go and check them out because mm. he's... Uh, if anyone he's, can recommend Beatles books, it's him. Yeah. <laughs> he's probably read more than anyone yeah. literally on the planet. Yeah. Um, and he is a fantastic guy. So, guys, very funny. We'll crack on with that in a second. But you, you had something to chat about? Yeah, musically. musical Go stuff. Go get the guitar, get, Robin, for get the God's guitar. sake. <laughs> well, you know, last week, we, there's this whole thing we were talking about key changes, right? And last week, mm. I kept saying chord change, and I meant key change. Sorry about that. But <laughs> someone pointed out that Penny Lane has got a brilliant key change in. And Penny mm -hmm. Lane is a song that I'd never really stopped to work out before. And it is extremely ingenious. Have you, do you, can you play it on the piano? 
Yeah, I can, yeah. Because it's, it's clearly written on the piano, because it's really hard to kind of arrange for guitar. Yeah. So basically the verses are in B, and then the chorus, it kind of goes down to A. But then the mm. great thing is the key change at the end, there's another chorus, but that goes to B, back up to B. Yeah. So it kind of hits that home key in a really peculiar way. And it's a really interesting one, furthering on from what we were talking about with Laura Barton, about the different characters of keys as well. Yeah. Because it's a very sort of sunny song, this, and that character of B major having all those sharps in them. It's, it's sunny um, and rainy, appropriately, for Penny Lane, I would say. Because yeah. the great thing is, so I found the best way to play it on the guitar is you play it in the key of D, because you can get the walking bass in it a bit more than... Mm. know goes to that minor um but the great thing is with that song is he's kind of using the classic 50s chord progression you know the kind of yeah yeah but then the great thing is he obviously goes to that minor chord and then you've got a nice chromatic yeah the chromatic thing down down. but the funny thing is he kind of he's almost acting as if he's still in the major because the note he goes down to is that such a weird chord and then you get that really nice suspension that then brings you into yeah. A major which is really yeah. it's really weird it's brilliant shall I have a bash at playing it on the piano? yeah go for it mate no pedal which is always very common with Paul <laughs> and he stays but the strange thing about it is that that bass carries on down the octave so it mm. kind of starts on the B which is the root of that B major Which brings you to E, which is, as the, anyone who's done the Grey 5 theory knows... Takes you nicely up to Dominant bay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a really weird little... And though that transition into E, and then, as you say, that A then modulates upper tone yeah. in, back into the home key of B major, which is really weird. I mean, the, 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 the way he goes to the minor is so classic. McCartney does a similar thing in Fool, Fool on the Hill. But it mm. is like he's literally taking it... This is bouncy, this is nice, and it's like literally... He's almost doing the same thing, but it's he's kind of gone through the looking glass and you're in the kind of, you know. <laughs> it's so weird yeah. and, and strange. Um, um, and it really sparkles as well. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, it's a brilliant and really unconventional bit of songwriting. Yeah. Um, sums up, yeah, well, what we were talking about the other day. Mm. Anyway, we won't keep you any longer because we've got to crack on with Joe. Yeah and talk about his uh, favourite Beatle books. You can hear an extended version of this podcast, as ever, by going to patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles, where you can get all our other bonus episodes. We've got another fantastic one coming up that we're recording this week, yeah. which is going to be really fun. We've got Alan Jono from uh, from Series 1 rejoining us to watch uh, Paul's Give My Regards to Broad Street, which um, I'll be watching this week. Yeah. Having skipped through it, it looks like it might be quite annoyingly good. <laughs> But um, Mm. we'll we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for now, please enjoy Joe Wisby of Beatles Books Podcasts, Personal Beatles. That's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to this week's episode of Your Own Personal Beatles, featuring another excellent podcast host. Um, Not that I'm an excellent podcast host, but you get what I mean. (laughs) Uh, Mr. Joe Wisby from the Beatles Books Podcast. Hello. 
Hello, one and all. How are you both? Very well, thank you. Nice to be here and all that. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Uh, Joe, your your podcast is kind of a, a process of archiving your Beatles books collection and interviewing various guests about particular books. So how, how many books have you got in the collection at the moment? At the moment, the sum total is between 450 and 475, <laughs> which I realise is very, very unhealthy in a way. Um, but at the same time, it's just one of those things that kind of grew. Yeah. And, and of course, now that I do the podcast and the Instagram page, they send me free ones. Yeah. Oh, nice. Amazing. I mean, it's like it's, it's, it's everything I ever wanted. You know, yeah. I just get these random Beatles books dropped through my door roughly once a month. And have you read all of them cover to cover? It's a classic question. Uh, I'd like to say yes. Um, I've certainly looked at all of them. There are there are some some of them uh, that maybe might arrive in, in conversation later that I physically couldn't finish because mm. they're obviously terrible. Right. Um, uh, but the ones that. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say eighty to eighty-seven percent of the books I've got, I've read fully. That's brilliant. And how did it start then? Like, how how did your Beatles journey begin? Well, it started on uh, the uh, June nineteen ninety-two. Uh, in fact, I've got the Radio Times behind <laughs> me from that week, which is another story. Uh, yeah. Which was um, England played France in Euro '92, and I was mm. eight. And I was, I was, I got into football because of Italian '90. Yeah, like a lot of people, and I was ready to watch this match on the Sunday afternoon. And they showed Help on ITV mm. yeah. before, and that was what kind of got me. Was what, and this was, was part of the McCartney there. is fifty strand, was it? Yeah. yeah. So later that evening, they the South Bank show Sergeant Pepper special was on. Mm. Which later appears on the Pepper box set, um, and I'd seen this in the aforementioned Radio Times, and I got my mum to record because obviously half ten as an eight-year-old, yeah. way past bedtime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my mum recorded it on a you know a Scotch or something yeah. or w- yeah. whatever the, uh, some random blank video cassette, and then the next day when I came back from school on the Monday afternoon, I watched this documentary, and that was when I was like, hang on a minute, how could it be those men on a sled? on mm. help be the same as the guys with the moustaches you know on top of Abbey Road going crazy yeah uh, and that was that was how I fell wow when you said you recorded your mum recorded it on a scotch I thought for I haven't heard that brand name for such a long time I thought you meant she was drinking whiskey <laughs> yeah <laughs> she uh, might have been who knows who knows yeah. for younger listeners that's a uh, a make of VHS tape so was it that um are you saying you weren't particularly impressed with help or was it just that Sergeant Pepper, the kind of the change was almost what kind of yeah. was amazing for you? It was that because I mean, obviously, as an eight-year-old, you're not massively into like the logistics of pop music, but I could realise that they just look. I just recognised obviously straight away they look so different, mm. even in those that, what you know under two years from Help to yeah. you know the all the pictures from that they showed in the documentary of them recording Sergeant Pepper. Mm. It, it just completely bewitched me uh, and then my and then that that weekend my dad took me to Ottica's bookshop this is just a this is just, this is just old brand names <laughs> yeah. um Ottica's bookshop much missed in Brentwood High Street and bought me my first Beatles book which was uh, it's by someone called Arthur Davis just a basic like picture book right um that just told the story in mm. a very thin kind of way but that was enough to the kind of 
hook me in, yeah. uh, and then th- and then three years down the line or so, anthology happens, and mm. it's it's all over at that point. I mean. <laughs> So alongside collecting the book, so did you kind of complete the record collection quite soon then? Or was it just, or you you kind of just filling in the gaps with the books first? Or were you kind well, of getting... the, the, because I'm an only child, mm. um, I was always a big reader. Yeah. And I just naturally kind of gravitated toward the books. Mm. And even as a kid... Well, maybe it was a kind of post anthology, but even even as a kid, I loved the idea of the story. Yeah, that that first book started with you know them as kids, basic mm. kind of you know um, school pictures, and finishes with them. It finishes in like nineteen ninety one or something of them. It's like you know in the early nineties, bad hair days, mm. and I just love that idea of the story. So obviously, I then looked into finding out more of the story, yeah. which meant going back into Ottercars and getting more books, yeah. uh, and I kind of climbed up the ladder from there. Yeah. Um, I mean, most of them I had, I bought them all on cassette, the right. first, because it was just, we were not a well-off family, so cassettes were the cheaper option, as you mm. both remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah, I, I kind of built up the collection, starting with the red and blue, mm. uh, and then uh, and then I got like a, I got a CD player for Christmas, the anthology Christmas '95. Mm. So I got like that and anthology one. Oh, brilliant! For, for my like, I, I was just turning twelve then in '95. Yeah. Uh, so and then obviously I, re- I rebought them all. I, I bought, I paid like sixteen ninety nine or something yeah. as you used to pay for CDs. Yeah. It's amazing when you see like a charity shop CD and it's got like our price something seventeen ninety nine and it's, and it's so like expensive. Best of it's, it's it's like Graceland or something yeah. like that. You're like, yeah. Yeah, God, kids don't know they're born. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. So, and, and you talked about the story, and um, there's a great episode of yours where you're talking to Andy Miller about the Hunter Davis book. And so in that episode, you kind of say this thing that in many ways that's the kind of, that's the kind of uh, you know, the, the tablet down from the mountain in terms of the first iteration of the story. So yeah. how, how do you feel about that book, the Hunter Davis authorised biography, and how do you feel that's kind of affected subsequent retellings? Well, one of the points in that episode that Andy made quite brilliantly was that essentially the beats of the story came all came from that book. Mm. Every book on all of our shelves, not every book, but you know, the majority of the books on all of our shelves take something from that one book. Yeah, yeah. Which was rushed out in, like, 18 months. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, but it was just like, you know, it, was, it wasn't anything that was poured over. It no. was just done quickly. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, the beats of the, of the story. And I think it's, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's sanitised. I mean, the view of it now is it's a sanitised kind of basic version of it. But if you pick it up now, there is some quite uh, stuff that, there's quite a lot in there about Paul and Stuart's falling out in the in Hamburg and, and things like that, um, there's no mention of the music at all. They Not, yeah. barely it barely talks about the music. Yeah. Um, but then that was what what was already around. They could hear the music there and then, couldn't they? It is kind of quite like you know adult in places. There's a great bit where George Harrison says we can't say the f word in songs, but I'm sure we soon will be able to. And it does say the f word in print, um, you know, and there's stuff like that. And there's also great like John talking about the kind of people reading into the lyrics and kind of, you know, we're just doing we're just writing songs, etc. They don't mean anything, and that's kind of almost looking ahead to the way we have kind of, you know, we do endlessly 
uh, interpret and reinterpret the songs. And it, so in many ways, it seems very ahead of its time, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It And it's, you know, it's it's it zips along, doesn't it? Mm. You know, there, there's such an energy to it. Um, which I which I got which I hadn't really remembered, but I I kind of rediscovered when I reread it in preparation for the episode with Andy. Mm. Um, I think uh, it, it's sort of and of course I mean it, it's been rewritten and re you know he's done new introductions several times since mm. that original version. But um, yeah, it, it's and of course it captures that weird moment of early sixty end of sixty seven. The breakup isn't really on the horizon, but they've done Sergeant Pepper. Mm. It's that kind of it's that kind of twiddling the thumbs period. Yeah, before between the end of Pepper Magical Mystery Tour, they've not gone to India yet. It, it's that it captures that weird kind of yeah. which then was just like another day. Yeah, but it, it captures that quite nicely. Yeah, sort of pre, it's sort of before the White Album really is where it's positioned. So it's just such a brilliant snapshot of that exact, exact time. Yeah. And uh, and we, when we interviewed Nish, he he mentioned the um, the kind of afterword bit, which was written in the eighties, so after Lennon's death. And that I, I went and read that after we interviewed him. And that that interview with Paul is extraordinary because it just sounds so off the record, doesn't it? It sounds like he's kind of ranting and raving about wanting to put facts right, you know? Well, I mean that's that's interesting because there's. Some as you as you might know on the Twitter feed that I do for the podcast, I just post random videos and stuff. And there's uh, because I spend far too much time on YouTube. Um, <laughs> and and if you look at the Paul interviews from how the how he's changed his interview style, mm. how much obviously naturally as he's got older, and how I think you know there's that thing of probably can't say quite as much now as you could have done then but you know some of those those interviews like that one for hunter davis the chris salovich one that he does for the first issue of q uh which is really open so i got i became known as being overpowering so it was abbey road we were doing yeah maxwell silver hammer because i got some grief on that i yeah, took yeah. three days to do that yeah. now you know how long trevor horn takes yeah, sure, to do a mix sure, for sure, frankie sure. you know so that's the strange thing i'm feel vindicated as time goes on i'm beginning to understand what i was doing and that it that it was it was half of it was as innocent as i thought it was uh he he, he was so i mean that might lead into talking about many years from now because I, th- I think he felt so... He had this thing where John had kind of dominated that narrative from the 70s. So he does that Rolling Stone interview um, and, you know, plays the press a bit better and and John kind of fits in with that 70s moment a bit better, certainly in the early part of the 70s. Then when John is, is killed and then you get a shout comes out, which obviously is a massively pro-Lennon book, you can kind of see why Paul must think, well, hang on a minute. Mm, yeah. Where, where's my voice in, yeah. in, in all of mm. this? Um, and yeah, it, that, I think that interview with Hunter is him voicing the frustration of his perception and the fact that, you know, Johnny's friend's gone and it, it must have... It's, I think 80s was a tough, a tough period in the McCartney uh, decades. So in terms of, like, the, the kind of myths about the Beatles that Lennon was the kind of more experimental, harder-edged one... And that's the kind of myth that McCartney's very keen to kind of take apart. Where do you think that myth came from? Do you think it came from books like Shout? Or do you think it, you know, just came in the wake of Lennon's death? Or, as you say, or... I, I think it's a combination of things, but I think Shout was a big part of that. Mm. I mean, of course, Shout had been had started... I think he'd started writing it, like, end of 78. 
and it comes out March of 81. Mm. And, uh, you know, you've got that thing of... When I worked at HMV, when, like, a, um, a actor or a musician died, we used to we used to say to each other, let's do the death Mio. And the Mio was the, Mio was the, end, was the name of the end of the... Of the um, of the aisle and yeah. people have that natural interest when someone dies of yeah. buying that film or that music <laughs> yeah. so so shout fitted in with that that moment perfectly because yeah. you know i mean I, I'm, I, if you've reread it recently that original edition it savages so much of paul mm. so i think shout was responsible for that alongside especially uh, more more so in america yoko kind of allying herself with yam Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine, mm. uh, which obviously Rolling Stone had been a big supporter of John's all through the seventies, and then when John is killed, she, without saying too cynical, I think there's an element of her and Jan recognizing they can keep this myth. Not, not mm. that it's entirely a myth, but they certainly keep that image of John going. Yeah. Um, and if you look through the reviews of Paul's albums through the eighties in in Rolling Stone and other magazines, it, uh, you know. They're not hugely glowing at yeah. times, so I think there's it's a, a combination of things um, that, that contribute to that that view of Paul. And of course, uh, you know, the other thing is after tug of war, the stuff that Paul was doing in the eighties isn't maybe you know things like you know you're going to rewatch Broad Street soon, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, so yeah. you will discover for yourselves <laughs> what happens in that film. Yeah. But you know, things like um, Pipes of Peace and Press, not the not classics, are they? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think as well that Paul kind of felt he'd suffered because, because he was, you know, because John was so outspoken and could was just happy to slag anything off and just could be so exaggerated and, and I think Paul kind of didn't play that part. So when the kind of some of these quite extreme things, like so Paul says in in that Hunter Davis interview about you know Yoko said no one hurt John like Paul. And Paul was like so hurt by that, and and it's partly that kind of thing of like, well, Paul would never say things like that. You know what I mean? Like John could just, John could be so you know cutting. And in that Hunter interview, he's trying to kind of right some of those wrongs and say, you know, I was hurt by John as well. You know, and yeah, what well, basically what about me? <laughs> you know, that's just yeah, that's quite extraordinary. It must have been difficult for him watching that. Well, obviously, it's difficult in that his friend's just been killed. Mm. And then for the next for years after that, everywhere he looked, it was John, John, John of the Beatles, John's mm. solo career was wonderful. I mean, it, it must have. Mm. I think it took, it took him a long time. Yeah. A long time to get past that. So we basically asked you before this, like, what, what were your kind of favourite Beatles books? And I think all of the ones you've chosen, well, let, let, let's say Beatles 66 and Many Years From Now, both of them do something to kind of write that McCartney myth, don't they? Yeah. So is that something that makes them kind of special for you or, or favourites? A little bit. I, I do, I've always gravitated toward Paul. Mm. Just, I just always have. Um, even, when, even when in the 90s when John still had that image of, you know, the cool... The cool one, you, mm. you know, like Robin. You put up a tweet recently about off the ground, yeah, about about who bought Paul McCartney's off the ground yeah, album in yeah. nineteen ninety three. Yeah, um, can tell you who my dad. <laughs> really? Yeah, he loved it. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a fine album. It's really it's a good. fine album. Yeah. yeah, but but it's interesting. I don't know who was buying that. I don't think anyone of 
you know, in their twenties. I don't know how many. If you took a demographic test yeah, on, yeah, yeah, I can't no, think it's of definitely me- peak Radio Two McCartney. I think. Mm. Yeah, and then it's, it's funny that thirty years on, he's kind of pulled that back. Yeah, yeah. Mm. As in, what do you mean, Jack? Like, as in, he's kind of become well. As in, he's much more. You know, as, as an in approaching 80 he's much hipper than he was in terms of his stock in 1993 yeah i think i mean what i think i was saying with that tweet in a way is this idea that we've really moved past the guilty pleasures thing and you know wings was a, a joke it was a joke that alan partridge preferred wings to the beatles you know and mm. and you know in terms of like abba and stuff they were just a joke as well about you know cheesy yeah and i think and now we've just totally reassessed all of that music, you know, Carpenters as well. And 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 I think, in a way, Paul McCartney, his reassessment is almost part of that. You know, we'd written it off. Elton John as well. So much Elton John was written off as being mm. a bit naff or cheesy. But I think, I, say, I think Paul's benefited from the fact that people have just kind of looked past that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. I think Queen as well, yeah. a, a bit of a joke in the, yeah. in the 90s. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it's also easy to make jokes about those bands when you never actually have to, when you, you know, you, the people who are making Wings jokes have probably never actually listened to a Wings record in the same way that people make Phil Collins jokes yeah. or whatever. But nowadays you actually, there's no excuse to not, like, to dislike something when it's, you can listen to it and be like, I, I, I now can't really feel strongly about this because it's, like, objectively not awful. <laughs> Do- do you think that part of that is, and I was just thinking about this, like, this morning almost, in thinking about doing this, is, in relation to Paul, is this idea that in the 90s, things like the music press and elsewhere, you had that this idea of the lad, that kind mm. of Liam Gallagher-type figure. Yeah. And then in the noughties, you had that idea of that, you know, terrible, like, Jack Daniels, swilling, leather jacket, Pete Doherty-type figure, <laughs> neither of which is Paul. Yeah. But now, you don't have that. The people that, you know, you've got, like, someone like Harry Styles, mm. who, I mean, he gave an interview where, on Howard Stern, where he was talking about Paul McCartney, and he said, well, Paul makes sense to, to him because he's not interested in throwing TV at, TVs out of windows mm. and, and stuff like that. Even that kind of libertines... It's, um, stroke stuff that that looks some of that stuff looks so old now. Yeah, that's some of those true. some of those those interviews with like you know things like Kasabian talking about the birds <laughs> yeah. or whatever. I mean, I, I know there's a, a whole other story with them, but you know that that kind of Johnny Burrell image that was really as yeah, you both yeah. remember was really popular. It was. That, yeah, that's gone now, and yeah. I think Paul Paul fits in with this this moment a lot more than he did in the nineties. Totally, and I think as well like people like Thundercat, you know talking about Hall and Oates or, you know, referencing that kind of 80s sound. And, you know, I think just, I think the younger demographic now is just a lot, just cares a lot less about labels and is, is listening to music from all eras and it's all yeah. mixed up together. And, yeah, and I think McCartney does fit into that now. As the remix album kind of showed to good effect, I think, that, you know, yeah. it's kind of connecting with the right people, definitely. I think as well, like, in the years since... Um like hip-hop has been the predominant pop form. Mm. Mm. People have a very different attitude to the legacy of uh, music and just, like, the history, like, musicologically. Mm. Everything's up for grabs in the world of hip-hop. You know, if you're Kanye, it doesn't matter if anything, if something's cool or, you know, if you're sampling Earth, Wind & Fire or whatever, because ultimately the music speaks for itself. 
Yeah. Mm. So I think with young kids now, like they yeah they don't if something slaps it slaps they don't yeah they're not pretend yeah. remotely bothered if yeah. he looks like a bit of a prat on the cover well i was gonna say do you remember that that idea of selling out yeah. oh man that band they've sold out yeah. big time yeah, yeah. you just never have it now would no you? i mean this is one thing that comes up a lot because we interview a lot of people from our demographic kind of our generation and this idea that in the 90s there were some records that you're so ashamed of owning, you know, and you'd hide the CDs away and everything. It's just non-existent now, that kind of real tribalism about yeah. kind mm. of uh, musical tastes and things like that. Yeah, I remember the moment when I realised that August and Everything After by The Counting Crows yeah. was just a fantastic album. Yeah. I was like, I just want to listen to this for like ever. Yeah, and and, and, I, and, I, and that's I think that's exactly what, what you what you're, you're talking about. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of my friend John's favorite albums as well. The Counting Crows, great Crows. record. Yeah, great record. Anyway, Can't say I'm there yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge Nick Kershaw fan, and I think he is due a massive critical reappraisal. But anyway, that's that's for another podcast. I mean, it's fascinating, actually. The in particular, Paul's attitude to the books. Mm. Um, he's, you know, he's obviously, like I said, I, I have seen quite a few interview clips with Paul over the years, and whenever he's asked about books, he never says, "Do you know what's a great book about the Beatles?" He's just really, he's just, he's got no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, relationship mm. with them at all. No, no. I mean, maybe now's a good time to talk about Revolution in the Head, then, because Paul's famously not keen on that one. Um, yeah. But what what what? what it's good what, if you want something to read on the toilet. Yeah. Uh, one of the things he said about. <laughs> what was what's your relationship with that book? Was that did you get that when it first came out, and was that part of that nineties kind of reassessment for you? Yeah, it, I mean, I got it when I was about I got it about thirteen, so about the second version of it, the post anthology version, about ninety seven, mm. and you know, it it it's completely of that moment, isn't it? It's mm. completely of that kind of post. Um, Anthology. You've got things like Mojo, the magazine that have appeared, where it's you, people are much happier to look back on their career, mm. and it fitted in with that moment really well. And I still, I still love it. Mm. I still, I still pick it up and read it. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, it, I mean, interestingly, when I did the my podcast on that book, and I'll, if one of those, I'll probably do other podcasts about that book. Actually, mm. I did that with a, an author called Chris Power. Yeah, he's great. Um, I love his his books. Yeah, really, really, really talented author, yeah. and it was a really good interview. And I, I think, and this sort of comes back to you, Robin. In that, you retweeted very kindly that my my tweet about that. Um, and I, I, th- I think Danny Baker follows you. I, I don't know if he well, does. <laughs> well, anyway, and yeah. he then picked up on that tweet and put a snarky comment about, uh, I don't know if you remember seeing that at the time, this is about January this year, um, and he put a comment, oh, I can't believe that they're even considering um, dismissing this book. It's a classic. And then I got like I got trolled a li- a kind of a very small amount of people. But Revolution Ahead does provoke that reaction in people. Why do you think that is? Well, I think... I mean, it's an interesting... I know the Soda Jerker guys often tweet about it because their view of it... Or I I don't know who runs the Twitter account, but they've often said this thing that they think it's led 
to kind of these kind of almost, as we were talking about with Paul, it's led to these kind of cultural assessments that are almost down in stone. Like, so is Maxwell Silverhammer a bad song or is it, have we just been listening to Revolution? Is Long, Long, Long a really good song or is that just the influence of... Uh, uh, revolution in the head. I think that I think I think their point is like the, opin- the, the the opinions are so subjective. The writing is so subjective that they think it's kind of swayed the way people feel about the records in some way. Maybe, yeah. I can. I. I mean, it's but that's testament to its power, really. Yeah, well, that's testament to the way that that book captured that moment. Totally. Yeah, I agree. And I and I think well, definitely when I was, you know, I must have been about four, thirteen, fourteen. It didn't change the way I felt about records, for sure. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously loved Helter Skelter at the time, but yeah. McDonald hates that with a passion, you know. So mm. it's like, yeah, it didn't really change that. But I, I do see the, I do see their argument. I think sometimes journalistically, certain ideas crop up, and you think that that's kind of post-revolution in the head, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I think it did give me license a bit more to reevaluate certain things as being below par because you you grow up with a sort of romanticized view of the Beatles just being incredible and if I I guess if it was a song I didn't like I'll think oh, I'll come round to it one day I know I didn't really um it didn't com- really compute that maybe some songs are just actually quite bad but because, <laughs> because he's got a very good because he mixes the granular with the with and the sort of very factually, you know, accurate way that it's all information gained from cataloguing numbers at Abbey Road yeah. with those very subjective opinions. Sometimes it's easy for you to just sort of get swept along in, you know, a very broad statement that's complete, that's quite wild. Um, but it definitely made me reassess quite a lot of um, things that I wasn't. Uh, Particularly early George songs, which have given, have kind of legitimised the niggles I've always had. That actually, I've always thought everything George wrote pre, you know, certainly early half is pretty poor. Yeah. Really? <laughs> uh, What's your view of the essay at the beginning? I love it. Yeah. Well, oh, that's fantastic. It's a superb piece mm. of writing, isn't it? What 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 do you think of that, Joe? Well, I think. That that did come up in the podcast, and that was, and we sort of agreed it. That sort of dated a bit more, because mm. uh, I mean that talks about that talks about that moment of the baby boomers, and you know, and how that generation changed. Obviously, he was born in nineteen forty eight, Ian McDonald, mm. uh, so he's completely part of that generation. And I think that that obviously that couldn't foresee what would happen with the baby boomers and, mm. and the way that generation changed. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, that that's a bit more of its moment. And he, he's very dismissive of things like dance music, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and, and I remember he calls, he calls um, computer games elaborate fruit machines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's quite weird, his taste, though, because he's, he, he quotes Marky e. Smith in that introduction, doesn't he, if I'm right? And that doesn't seem to be someone who would be particularly in his... In his kind of wheelhouse, the kind of punk post punk thing, but yeah. you know, who knows? But mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, there's definitely a thing with Ian McDonald. It's a bit like someone who says the the best Doctor Who was at its best when I happened to be fourteen. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing. I could certainly see him if he was still around, outstaying his welcome as a six music DJ. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and of course, his his, his other book was about Shostakovich. Mm. You know, it's not like like some of these authors 
which which we love, they will they are Beatle authors. They will write books about the Beatles. It would have been interesting to see where he would have gone. You know, Shostakovich, the Beatles, is a, a fair bridge. Um, yeah, it's quite daring in its use of musical theory as well for such a widespread. But you know, it's not sort of alienating. But he doesn't really hold back on the technicalities of things, and you can tell he does have good, um, you know, sort of. The, the, the fundamentals are there in terms of his like theory and classical knowledge and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, and I mean, he is just such a brilliant pro stylist. I mean, that that I mean, the Beatles books that I love that I've read that they they do tend to be have that quality. So much as you know, obviously, Mark Lewison is superb. Like when you think tune in starts with that line about sometimes there's an ultimate, and you think that you know. That, I don't think that's a real banger of an opening. Do you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> like, as brilliant as he is, and obviously an amazing guy, like yeah. Ian MacDonald does have an incredible prose style, mm. which is like almost poetic. There's a know? lot more flair to it, certainly. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, yeah. Lewiston, as amazing and unprecedented as that book is, it's quite dry. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but it's, just, it's, more, it's more of a historical thing. I think I prefer one, you know... I, 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 which, which is great, but I also love the books which are more kind of art, artistic achievements of their own in a, in a way. So mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Are either of you familiar with the book "Tell Me Why" by Tim Riley? No, mm. I don't know that. So uh, Tim Riley, future guest on the Beatles podcast, plug plug. Um, <laughs> he wrote a book called "Tell Me Why." In he's an American author in 1988, mm. and that was a book which incredibly similar to uh, Revolution in the Head in that it broke down each song. It, it, it's Even the way it's kind of styled is very similar to... But it, it's written in a... It hasn't got the quite the flair, as you, as you say, of, of, of McDonald's writing. So therefore, it's not remembered like Revolution in the Head is remembered. But um, it's still in print if you want to pick it up. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, it's... It, it, there aren't many Beatles books that um, have have got that that style that the Revolution Ahead has. Maybe that's why it's lasted as long as it has. Mm. I remember the first time I read it that it was a proper, considering it's broken down in that way, it's a proper page turner as well because he does sort of, especially this talking about. I mean, it's one of the more problematic books that we've talked about before, but his the way that he 
describes John's dalliances with acid. I mean, dalliances is quite a sort of <laughs> <laughs> understatement. But um, yeah, definitely it's the most... Um, partly because there is this sort of tacit moral judgment, but um, also it's the, mo- it's the most sort of candid I've read anyone talk about just how destructive and uh, extreme mm. John's behaviour was in 66, 67. I mean, he, he makes that comparison to, you've got that Peter Green, Sid Barrett comparison that you know, obviously they're, ex- you know, I, I imagine I'm not experts on either of them, but I know that they, obviously similar kind of generation and age to John, their drug intake led to a big downturn in their creative abilities, which John doesn't really happen with John. John manages to kind of rein it in um, uh, to a to a certain extent. So I think that that would just when he writes about that the acid side of things, it was those two people that kind of came into came in my mind. What's an, an, another of your top five? <laughs> well, should we talk about many years from now? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Because I mean, I'm interested to see what Jack. Have you read it? I many haven't. Years from now? Sadly. Okay, that's okay. Uh, and Robin, you're just starting to read it, or you? Well, it, I mean, I ordered it after you, after we de- had that email, and it came like about two days ago, and it, and it okay. is seven hundred pages. But <laughs> I mean, but I did. I was wrote this on Twitter about. I did like the, the beginning of the first chapter, which is. I know books need historical context, but it, the beginning is on the twenty eighth of August, twelve oh seven. Because he actually goes into how Liverpool came to be a, a city and everything, but no, it's brilliant. And I, I you know, I've I've read the opening bit and kind of skimmed through it, and um, I think it, you know, and and Barry Miles is such an important figure in that it, that period as well. Um, but it it does it really does so much to kind of rescue McCartney's reputation, as it were. Well, I think that's clearly what it was set out to do. Mm. Um, and like I said, there hadn't been he'd been so removed from the narrative through the 70s 80s and then it starts to come back in the 90s and again it's released in 97 at that perfect mm. that kind of post flaming pie do you know what mm. i mean do you, do you remember how popular flaming pie, flaming pie was yeah i, I just remember i remember seeing him on tfi friday yeah mm. yeah we talked about that show a few times it was a big moment i hope you yeah. really right with all the tv uh, screens it, yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah. and he's I, I, I mean, I suppose there's not an equivalent of... I suppose there is. You, you couldn't imagine him doing the word in 93 for off the ground, can you? I don't know, no. maybe I'm... I don't know, I can't imagine him doing, like, a youth TV show like that. Yeah. I think that during the, the big Beatles renaissance of the 90s, people would have got gone crazy about any McCartney record and the fact right. that it was good. I think there was... And there was almost a feeling of, like... It was now after Oasis. It was like, it was almost like McCartney was kind of going back to something slightly more Beatlesy and more kind of. Yeah. It's, it doesn't sound like a very kind of raw record. It sounds like a Jeff Lynne record because it is uh, a Jeff Lynne. Record. Yeah, but it's got some great. It's got some beautiful songs mm. on it. But um, yeah, there's definitely a sense that it was McCartney is cool again kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the book the book ties in with that moment perfectly mm. because I mean if you look at the pictures in the spine mm. it's people like it's a picture of Stockhausen and a picture yeah. of you know Luciano Berrio it it rams home that idea of him as someone that that was you know the avant-garde beetle yeah. but the reason it does that is because that's what he was. Mm. Mm. And that 
you know, that that cliche of him being in London going out and doing stuff when the rest mm. of them weren't is because that's that's what he was doing. Mm. He saw that moment. He real I think he I mean obviously it's a marital setup as well, but I think he definitely saw that mid sixties swing in London, whatever you want to call it, moment as maybe even as something finite. Mm. And he thought, I'm gonna go into every play and every uh, you know, a uh, gig or, an, or every art art installation. I'm going to do this and be mm. this person and osmose all this stuff. Yeah, and I think many years from now captures that. Yeah, really well. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think you know, and the, the thing with John is that we tend to think one thing of him, but he would say one thing one day and another thing. Yeah. you know that there's that you know the famous quote: "Avant garde is French for bullshit," which yeah. John Lennon <laughs> apparently said. And John Lennon. As being a Dylan fan, but also being highly suspicious of Dylan's oblique lyrics and thinking they were a bit kind of Emperor's New Clothes as well, I think that kind of gets lost because Lennon was often just two people at once, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, we do tend to think of Lennon as being the kind of adventurous one when obviously in in that period, particularly 66, you know, McCartney was... The wire reader of uh, of his day, <laughs> for sure. You know, <laughs> like uh, he was so interested in what was going on. Yeah. Um, without spoiling it too much for for either of you, the book doesn't deal with anything after the Beatles, mm. uh, which I think is really interesting. Right. Um, yeah. It doesn't. It it literally ends. The, I think the last chapter is called. I think there's the the chapter last, but one is called John, mm. and it just obviously deals with that that kind of post. Beatles relationship, and then the last chapter is called the nineties, mm. in which in which it lists like his class his his classical. Oh, he's doing he's doing a classical album, and mm. he's making this fireman album, and yeah. you know it, it makes sure that the people know what he's up to. Essentially. Yeah. Um, so you're going through the index looking for Mull of Kintyre, and it's like he's what? not in there, <laughs> not in there. <laughs> Nothing not. about Broad Street in there. So yeah, you know, yeah. in your in your research for that episode, yeah. steer clear of many years from now. Both of you. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's I mean, there was talk of another volume at the time. There was mm. some conversations about whether we do like a Wings book, uh, which obviously never happened. And mm. um, Tom, Tom Doyle wrote wrote that really good book about the Wings era, Man on the Run, mm. um, which which covered that that period. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's it, it was, at the time it was sort of dismissed as a book as him kind of feathering his nest a bit, mm. uh, which I think because there was it was still that moment of him being dismissed. Obviously, I don't think as much as he was kind of ten years previous. Um, but it's just it's not him. It it it's not him feathering his nest. It's just facts. It's just mm. what happened and. Um, it's and he, you know and he goes through all the Beatles songs. He says, "Well, I wrote this. John wrote this, yeah. and you know things that needed to be said." John had the equivalent with that Playboy interview. Mm. Thankfully, you know, months before uh, he was killed, he sat down with Playboy and went through mm. all the Beatles songs as he remembered them. Then, um, so yeah, it's it really is um, it's canon, I would say, many years from now. <laughs> Right. What's your favourite book? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that could be a good segue into the the um, Steve Turner book. Then, as we're talking about Paul. (laughs) Well, what I love about this is um, is no, I love Steve Turner. I mean, are you both aware of his book A Hard Day's Right? Yeah, yeah. That was actually a really important book for me. I remember I bought that book. 
second hand from Brentwood Library when when libraries would like sell off stock. Mm. I had so it still got you know that thing in library books that used to have the little kind of leaf in the front where it was oh, yeah. stamped each time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, could, I, I could tell you exactly when it was taken out in like nineteen ninety three. That's great. Uh, and anyway, uh, I love that book. And he's written a few, he's written another really good book called uh, the Gospel According mm. to the Beatles because mm. uh, he's quite a religious uh, guy Steve Turner and he kind of took the angle of how they their kind of dealings with religion but Beatles sixty six literally slows down the action doesn't it from mm. it starts in December sixty five so it kind of it sets the scene uh, and then it takes you on that journey and if you could sort of do it for every year. Mm. 65 is the one year that you maybe you couldn't do it for. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's still a lot happening in 65, but all the other years is jam-packed with stuff. Yeah, yeah. But this is that real... It's that kind of like the the turning point, isn't it? If you think of the band they are when they start 66 and the band that they are when they're recording, you know, Penny Lane and Shelby Fields... Yeah. That's the biggest change. If you look yeah. at the start of 64 and the end of 64... There's not a huge amount of difference, mm. but the change that they go through, through that hideous tour mm. in America and in the Philippines and Japan, the writing and recording of Volva coming across things like Pet Sounds, um, John's Bigger Than Jesus stuff, you know, it's there's so much that happens. Mm. Uh, and he and Steve Turner slows this action down and really, really, really interestingly drills down into the the detail of it, mm. um, and I think it's just... I think that's the way that Beatles books are going to go. Right. Is is that real... Where you find something really specific and drill down on that. The yeah. days of doing the Beatles biography are gone because, yeah. of, because of the work Mark Lewis is doing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Or even like a John Lennon biography or a Paul McCartney biography. You don't... There's just no, there's no room for that now. It's been yeah. done. Yeah. Um, so now you've got like that... The Beatles and Drugs book, which was by Joe Goodwin, which was a really good book, mm. um, where you, where they, or you know, or you could do a book about, I don't know, like the Paul's drug bust in nineteen eighty, yeah. finding sp- finding specific things like yeah. that, which Hunter Davis is really brilliantly calls daft. which is really funny so Paul was being daft which it was quite daft Mm -hmm. but yeah um, I see what yeah like I think that's a really good point and I think Beatles 66 does that so well and and, I mean I listened to your podcast interview with Steve Turner and and the research he had to do is almost like filling in the calendar like you know Ringo Mm. was on holiday here you know and um, you know Paul Paul was having an affair here and you don't want to know what they got up to in India and you know all this but um but one thing that I love about it is for me like one of the really important books I read when I was young was Summer of Love George Martin's book about Sergeant Pepper right. and just the way he described that period before Pepper was just so evocative and just like just so kind of something I wanted to you know experience somehow you know you know so Paul being in London and uh, and John being away filming in Spain that I, and just finally having both of them having a chance to slow down but I just mm. think particularly something about John being in Spain and writing Strawberry Fields it's just so uh, that's just such a brilliant part of the story for me because you can kind of hear in Strawberry Fields that he slowed down in terms of he's allowed himself time to 
you know, let his mind wander and question himself and kind of... And you can mm. feel the sun sun in that song as well, you know. Mm. And it was recorded in... Even though it was recorded in December, you can feel that kind of... Yeah. That kind of experience of it. So I think that... I mean, I really loved reading that book for that reason because it does just, you know, dwell on that fantastic period. I, I like also the... The fact that um, one of the points that Steve made in that interview is they end up playing that last gig in a cage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're literally yeah. on stage. And they're, if you think about the, the cavern, when, you know, girls would hand them requests you know, on, on bits of paper, scribbled mm-hmm. requests, a hastily scribbled note on a, on a, a bit of paper. And now they're, in this, they're literally, you know, probably felt like miles away from the audience. Yeah, yeah. And that's in three years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you talked you talked previously about the speed of all of this, and it, it's a slightly well worn point. Yeah. When you look when you when you look at it like that, yeah. um, and that's why I think it's a, it's a great book at capturing that 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 the chaos of that last tour. Yeah. I think if there's if there's a, a documentary to be made about the Beatles, I'd love to see it. Would be on that last tour. Mm. Um, I think that's there's some real. It's got that slightly dark. Totally. drama side to it and there's a the firecracker thrown on stage and they carried on playing the song <laughs> they didn't even stop playing the song it's mm. absolutely insane i think it might yeah. be my favorite bit of the anthology actually talking yeah. about the the madness of that tour and stuff because it was yeah it was genuine peril involved in those days yeah yeah yeah, yeah. george makes that point that you know, there's there's race riots happening. There's always there was something else going on. Mm. It had changed, didn't it, from that? If you look at that '64 footage, even that first tour of '64, especially that first US visit, it's just dripping with joy. Mm. There's just so much happiness and uh, you know energy and yeah joy surrounding them yeah. and the way that they are in the interviews and the press conferences. Yeah. And then if you look at some of the press conferences that are in anthology and the, some of the other um, the Eight Days a Week film, and they're getting asked all these stupid. Mm. questions about stuff and you can see they're just so miserable yeah i mean i think that's one thing that steve turner captures really well is that is the kind of press surrounding it a the press were kind of wanting them to fail Mm. in a way it was like oh is the bubble is the bubble burst kind of thing and b the music press as we know it now in terms of um you know intelligent writing about rock or pop music just just did literally did not have the vocabulary to describe Rubber Soul yeah. or Revolver. And that's so fascinating. And and basically the, the kind of crawdaddy and Rolling Stone kind of came out, you know, the Beatles paved the way for it. Like, you know, I think Steve Turner quotes the, one of the reviews of, of It Is Revolver and it's just literally like, Annual Bird Can Sing is a rocking little number. <laughs> it's just like not engaging with it in any way at all. It's so fascinating because, that, you know, that's part of what, they did is completely change the the boundaries of of rock and and then journalism had to kind of keep up with it, you know. Yeah, mm. I, I, want, I wonder how they felt about that. Whether or yeah. not they would, you know, they. But I suppose if if that's all they knew, then they it wouldn't have maybe you know upset or frustrated them in any way. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, but you, you know, it's like that some of that Dylan footage from the Don't Look Back and the mm. eat, eat, eat the Document films, and he's getting, you know, the famous thing when the guy says, there's a photo shoot with Dylan, and the guy says, suck your glasses. And he's <laughs> got like, do you know, and it's just, you, you just feel like this, that generation, they were just so far removed from what had come before. Yeah, show me your yeah. fingernails, Pe- there's a bit where <laughs> yeah. it's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> <Go away. laughs> 
<laughs> Excellent Bob Dean impression. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely, they were just like aliens, weren't they? But you know, they didn't know how to deal with them, and the journalistic voices at that time certainly weren't getting you know the, the the space, I suppose, and hence, like you say, Rolling Stone and others appear, uh, and that's when you get that that kind of. But then out of that, you get that rockist. Yeah, you know, view of writing, which uh, yeah. which happened. So it's it mm. took a while for the music journalism kind of area to find its feet and and work out where it was going. The, the original review of Sergeant Pepper in the Times is really interesting because it's incredibly effusive and the pretty like and for something that I've always felt that that's an example of it was obviously not the norm, but they got it completely right in that they knew immediately. I mean, it could have mm. just been one particularly good journalist, but um, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a big... I think Ian MacDonald quotes a large chunk of it, so I kind of sort it out, but it's... Uh, yeah, they really, like, put their uh, set, put themselves on the line as to, like, how much of a game-changer that was. Did they say it was a defining moment in 20th century culture? Is that that one? Yeah, that's exactly... Yeah, that's the phrase, yeah. Imagine writing that on. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Pitchfork used that about twice a week. But <laughs> I think I think I think all the Be Here Now reviews also mention that phrase. So, um, <laughs> it certainly, is interesting that the journalistic voices around that time they were scrabbling for for words, mm. weren't they? They just yeah. couldn't they couldn't keep up with it. Um, mm. And you and you didn't really have that. You know, the, people weren't interested in the celebrity side of of things because you had the. That kind of teen magazine thing, didn't you? Mm. Where, which obviously is where the, the um, in America they picked up the the Johnny's, uh, the sorry, the uh, it was a bigger than Jesus quote. So you had all of that kind of stuff, um, but yeah, there was just no the intelligent rock writing. Maybe it was out there, and we're not we're not aware of it. But it, mm. it, it must have been frustrating for them. I think they probably recruited a few more younger people when they realised that this rock and roll thing was sticking around because yeah. there's something incredibly patronising about even the way that they're fawned over at the beginning is kind of you know they've charmed the establishment, but when the when they've kind of turned on them later on, as you say, examples of that in that in that Dylan stuff, like. They're sort of, yeah, they're, they're bored of that. They're looking for the next story and they kind of betray the fact that they don't have any real interest in it beyond it being a scoop. Should we discuss tuning? Should oh, yeah. We, uh, or even Mark Lewison as a... As a kind of a, an entity, is, mm. it, is, it, is interesting. I mean, like, kind of full disclosure. I've, I've got like, I, I'm had a mutual, have a mutual friend with Mark. Oh wow! Um, so I've got to, you know, I've, I've met him several times. Amazing. Pre pre COVID, um, uh, and yeah, I mean, he's nothing but a very nice, friendly person, mm. <laughs> a very nice man. Um, and I met him. I, I I remember I went to this talk with my friend Jules. Shout out, Jules, if you're listening. Uh, and it was in, I think it was in Whitechapel. And it was a, uh, it's on SoundCloud. Someone recorded it. And it was like a talk about this guy that had done this art installation about the Six Days War and how that compared to the Beatles. Uh, 
Uh, and it was, yeah, it was like very, very strange. I'll see if I can find a link and send it to you both. Yeah. Um, anyway, and he was like at this talk, very small, probably about 30 people in this kind of little gallery in, in Whitechapel somewhere. Um, and, and Mark was there, kind of just did his side of things about the Beatles and discussed the Beatles and stuff. Um, and then I met him, I had like an evening with him after after that with my, my other friend. And wow. uh, yeah, he was just a lovely guy. And um, I mean... And then I, I mean, I, I've emailed him a little bit over the course of doing the podcast. He's 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 got no interest in appearing on it as yet, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and hey, who can blame him? I um, uh, but I think I wonder how do you guys feel about the kind of pressure that he might be feeling at the moment? I mean, this is a long time between books now. Yeah. Well, I was going to because we, we just interviewed John Bradley uh, from Game of Thrones. Mm. I was going to say there's kind of a similar thing going on there, isn't there, <laughs> with the Game of Thrones books? Yeah. Because he's 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 taken on such a monumental task. But I saw someone tweeting that there is a potential release date next year for the second one. No, that was, was that fake news. Tr- was fake it fake news? news. Okay. Like yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so no, no clear idea on no. the second one. But he's doing. Is it going to be a trilogy? Right. So the mm. idea, yeah, I think the 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 idea is is that he's working on the two of them at mm. once because from the interview side of things if he leaves all the people much longer yeah they're, they're not going to be either around or available to talk okay mm. so i think he's 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 trying to capture as many of those people that he can now whilst they're because you know as we know this is a long time ago now mm. um and you know no one's getting no one's getting any younger so i think yeah he's i think from what i can gather from him is that the gap between two and three will be less. Right. And that he's sort of piling on the work now to get this to get to get them both done while he can. Yeah. Um but but we'll see. But yeah, I don't know what what you guys feel about you know, whether or not he's gonna this is almost too too much of a gap now. If if we're mm. talking ten years, I don't know. It's uh, I mean I've it came out nearly ten years ago and I've just finished it, so it's kind of you know, I can wait five years because <laughs> I haven't had to wait 15. But it's a bit like sort of, I don't know, it's a bit like going viral first, being the man who's going to count to 10 million when you've only reached <laughs> 5 million. <laughs> so, like, do, do you um, think because the first one ended at such a pivotal point, where do you think the second one will end and the third one begin? I would imagine that this might, the second one might end at Candlestick Park. Mm, yeah. Or... or the end of or New Year's Eve '66 or the first day to go and record um, Penny Lane, Shelby Fields. Mm. I'd imagine it's going to be around that because mm. I mean I've been to quite a few talks that he's done over the years. He, I, he did one where he, someone asked him about the Beatles breakup or something, and he said, "Well, I, I, there is a thought of doing a volume four mm. about about doing up until like 198 up until John's death and stuff." I mean, I, I think that wow. he might. I think I think that might be overreaching a little bit. Yeah. Um, if, if you think he's kind of late, is he late fifties now? I'm not sure. Early sixties? Mm. I can't remember. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, think he's been involved in the story for such a long time. I mean, he he put past masters together and and all that, yeah. didn't he? And so yeah, yeah, his knowledge is just second to none, oh, isn't it? He's. You know? I mean, I, you know, no author is perfect, obviously, and there's always 
ways you can look at his work in a critical light like any author ever but for me personally I feel like he's the right person to be doing this mm. um part of that for me is because he's got he's not involved in the in the organization now he he's been he's through reasons that I think he's outlined in other podcasts he's not involved in, in Apple now uh, from about the early noughties so he's got a bit of distance so he can he can be completely independent but at the same time he's put in those years of actually knowing knowing Paul quite well etc and people like Derek Taylor and Neil Aspinall uh, so I think he's yeah for, for me personally he's the right the right man yeah. to do it I think you really get a sense of that in the, in the book and my sort of you know slightly glib comment of it being quite dry is mm. it it that's just a byproduct of it being very neutral in a way, and I'd much rather have it like that because it does yeah. read like a like a history book more than, and I'm more interested in it than on on that level. You know, I'm I'm more into um, the, the a, a really sort of you know nook and cranny version of the Beatles story more than another opinion piece of. Yeah, I think yeah. this is where we differ, isn't it? Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. because I, yeah. when you said that earlier, I thought, actually, yeah, yeah that's quite a major yeah. turning mm. point for me. And it, it reminds me of sort of the great biographies, you know, of, you know, like the ones on Lincoln and Churchill and stuff, like because there, there's a certain amount of distance which is absolutely paramount to get that right. And you do get the sense that if, well, you know, God willing, these get properly finished, they will be the texts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, they can't come soon enough for me, but also I'm, I'm very willing to wait. <laughs> mm. Yeah. You know. one, one thing I wonder about Mark Lewison is, because I think Steve Turner deals with this quite well, is dealing with how much of an unreliable narrator Paul is. You yeah. know what I mean? Like he, Steve has to, Steve Turner has to put that in this introduction. Like Paul keeps saying this thing happened. It didn't. I've worked, out, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I heard a brilliant one. I can't remember who told me this, but like Paul McCartney met Martin Amis in the eighties and right. said, "I wrote paperback writer about you." And it's like Martin Amis's first novel was published in nineteen seventy three. It's obviously, but like, so I mean, how do you think Mark Lewis deals with that? Because does he still interview Paul or or no, no, no? I think in the um, for the first volume, they a few emails were exchanged, and he Paul kind of gave some, uh, I suppose, technical information about some recording equipment. Uh, but I don't, from what I can gather from him and the interviews that he's given, I don't think there's been any involvement on this volume, mm. um, which I think, you know, there's enough Paul McCartney interviews out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if anyone's skilled enough to work out where the truth is in those interviews, I think Mark Lewison mm. is the person to do mm. that. But, yeah, you've really got to pick... You've, you've got to find the gold in those interviews. Mm. Um, uh, that's a slight... Um, bugbear of mine is that you see on Twitter often. Not that I should look at Twitter that much, but you know, <laughs> you know when you know on it's come up in that three two one documentary when people will moan about Paul telling the same stories. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now I completely understand, and it's just my blind spot for for him and the Beatles probably. But like that story that he tells about when he was playing Hey Jude to John. Mm. And the movement you need is in your shot is on oh, your shoulder, yeah. which is and I and John was like, no, no, you'll keep that line, yeah. keep that line. Yeah. 
Mm. Which he and the best telling of that is in the anthology, by the way, which is, yeah. which is perfect. The perfect oh, yeah. telling of that. Because he talks, you know, he feels this sense very emotional when he sings that line live, and he mentions yeah. that, doesn't he? He said, "I know what it means. The movement you need is on your shoulder. It's great. It's kind of so." That was the great thing about Johnny. Whereas I would definitely knock that line out. He said, "It's great." I could see it through his eyes and go, "Oh, okay." So that is the sort of line now when I do that song. That's the line when I think of John, you know. Sometimes get a little emotional during that moment, you know. And I lo- and the thing about that is, yeah, he's told that countless times, and he, I'm God willing, he'll tell it again at some point. But that's, you know, I just love, in, maybe it's just me, but I love the, the familiarity of some of those stories. Mm, I just, yeah. I, 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 I've got no issue with him repeating those stories in any, in any way, shape or form. And, mm. and at the same time, when you get a new story, yeah. like, like there's, have you ever seen the interview that he did with Ronnie Wood in about 2013? No, I didn't. Uh, yes, no. I have. Actually, so, yeah. Have you seen yeah. that, Jack? Yeah, so there's an... In- Ronnie Wood did this... Uh, you might remember, Jack. It was like a series of it interviews. A, it like. was a YouTube channel thing. YouTube, it? yeah. yeah. Uh, and he tells this story about how it was at like Christmas in about 1958 and John had um, been round to see him, at, obviously at Paul's house, and then John had walked home. And then the next day, or the few days later, John had seen Paul again and said, on my walk home... There, there, were, there were those people sat on your in one of your neighbours' front garden. People, people just sat out there in the middle of the night and Paul's like, whoa, whatever, a bit weird. So anyway, Paul's like walking on his own the, the following day. He looks past his house that John was and, he, and there was like a nativity scene. Someone had put, <laughs> but John without the glasses on. And like, these people sat there. Just a lovely little really yeah, kind of human, really human story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, I would never tire of Paul McCartney's stories. Yes. No, that's, that's my view. That's nice. And if you're going to put a bit of variation in, I think you've earned it after spinning... Same yarn for sixty years, but it's all—it's all about context, isn't there? There was a lovely interview you did with Ed O'Brien when the from was it Ed O'Brien from Radiohead? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, when he on Instagram when the um, when the remix album came out and Ed O'Brien had his daughter come along and his daughter was, must be kind of eighteen-ish and mm. and she was just saying how much she loved Let It Be and Paul did the Let It right. Be story, you know, right. about how the the inspiration for it was a dream. His mum and everything, and it was so touching and, and you know, really moving. Like you know, you know that story, but yeah, you know, he's telling it there for a specific reason or whatever. And yeah, that was great. You know. Do you know the um, the one that he didn't tell so much now, but he told loads at the time is the how the Michael Jackson bought his song story. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And he he's, he he does a, a slightly worse impression of Michael Jackson each telling. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it starts off as like passable, and by the end, it's, it sounds like it sounds like Kermit the Frog or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> Hi, Paul. I'm going to play your songs. Um, great. Uh, so yeah, uh, maybe there's a if if there's ever a mastermind category of Paul McCartney's familiar stories. Yeah. Get me there with Clive Myrie or whatever it is. <laughs> is it Clive Myrie? It's Clive Myrie. Yeah. Anyway. That's brilliant. Oh, that's great. So I, I just, before we go, I wondered. Um, What's what's the kind of you mentioned? There are some terrible books out there. What's the maddest Beatles book you've come across? Well, um, what did I post? Oh, the the, the cheese sandwich. You must oh, have yeah. seen the cheese sandwich one. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that, Jack? Yeah, yeah, I saw it on your Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, a woman that, that made John Lennon a cheese sandwich in Liverpool in 1960, and I mean, there's a bit more about her youth in Liverpool, but she did 
apparently, allegedly, make John a cheese sandwich in 1960. And that was my, that that went on Twitter and that got retweeted by a few big accounts. And I've got, I've got loads of people saying, and then that led to people saying, I made John Terry a, a coffee in, in that Ipswich in 2007. <laughs> Is there a book in that or something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's that one, the conspiracy theory ones. Mm, um, you've got mm. all the Paul is dead ones, but you've also got the Lennon the John Lennon one about, um, I think you might have commented on it, Robin, actually, on the Instagram feed. Mm. Uh, the Lennon conspiracy where John John sold his soul. Right, oh, yeah, my God, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and your comment was from the blurb on the back, I think the word may is doing quite a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, wow. so there's, there's that one. There's a Kindle-only sex lines with the Beatles. If you want to, if you want to go deep, no pun intended. <laughs> um, uh, is that a yeah. kind of er- erotic fan fiction or no? no it's no, just. Uh, it's just it, a, I mean, it's got it, a very. It's got an inappropriate. It's a blow by blow account. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got an inappropriate cartoon front cover, which doesn't fit because it's got from that kind of. Um, like seaside postcard right. figures on the front of them, but yeah. it's never, it's not got a physical release, alas, only on Kindle. I wow. haven't read it myself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it, it, <laughs> it, it alleges that it goes into some depth about the the, the comings and goings of the uh, fab of the Fab Four. The um, but, you know, the conspiracy theory that John and Paul were were lovers as well. I wonder if there's any books about that. I think <laughs> that I think it crops up in a few, but I don't, yeah. think, I don't, I don't think it's ever got itself its own tome. No, but. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who knows where? Who knows what? Who knows yeah. what the future will bring? Yeah, uh, maybe that will be that. That will be next. Um, do you have the book that um, there was the uh, the back blurb of a book that went viral on Twitter the other day of a similarly sort of tenuous relationship that was it someone's yeah. Brian Epstein's secretary? Yeah. Um, did you have? Did you have you got that book? I had that. I, I I got that 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 book was a gift. From about 2004, from a well-meaning ex-girlfriend's mother. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Oh, bless. Obviously, you know that thing when people say, oh, I like the Beatles, and they'll buy, people used to buy, you know, from the kindness of her own heart. And um, Lord knows where she is now, but she bought me that that book, and obviously I realised it was hideous. And I've never, I, I think I flicked through the, I think I flicked through it on the day. The, bl- um, the blurb ends in quite a shocking way. Says uh, she died mad- horribly and unexpectedly of mad cow disease. <laughs> God, it's a horrible. It's a, yeah, oh, I mean, that what an that. I mean, I mean, there is a dark, you know, there is a sort of a dark side to some of these, some of this stuff, and that that's a good example of just a, hit, a horrible. Horrible cashing, but yeah, I I thought about um, when that 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 tweet went viral. I thought about trying to find it again, but I've yet to make that particular journey to <laughs> onto onto the bookshelves to find it again. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's so much. There's yeah, I mean, as you can see on the Instagram account, I, I just there's just so much out there. Mm. Um, there's probably I think there's well over a thousand mm, that yeah. have been published, yeah. um, which I don't think you can say about any other artist. Yeah. No. 
It's quite extraordinary. And we we really have kept you for a long time, but do you have a controversial Beatles opinion? Because this is the question we ask all our guests. <laughs> My controversial Beatles opinion might be... Are you ready? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My controversial Beatles opinion is... The White Album should be one album. Hooray! (laughs) Another one. (laughs) I was at another. Okay, so um, am I not not the first? Oh, are you the other? That was in episode one, my controversial Beatles opinion. Okay. Which I go back and forth on, to be honest, but, you know. I, I, I mean, it. I'm all about. I, I love, like, you know, I love brevity. Fil- films that are more than two hours, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not into. I like, I like, I like, uh, you know, if you've got something to say, say get to the point, make mm. it rhyme, see you later. And <laughs> yeah. I think there is a fair bit of chaff on the White Album. Um, but then some days I'll be listening to it and it's like going into a, an empty summer house, mm. into a different room or something every day. And it, and it works really well as a double album. Yeah. But I think in, in the main, I think I don't think, you know, Wild Honey Pie is going to, you know, people aren't going to miss that. And I, I think, actually, I think um, some of Georgie's songs on there, I, I think Savoy Shuffle and Piggies are two of my least favourite ever Beatles yeah. songs. I think there's a slightly a slightly grim meanness to, to both of those songs mm. that um, just doesn't sit with me and I, I don't I, I don't really listen to that often. Or obviously, and uh, of course you had the um, Everything Everything guy mentioned about one, one My Guitar, Gently Weeps, not being his favourite either. Mm. Um, so I think... Although I do like, I like Long Long Long, um, but uh, yeah, that white album for me, trim it. That's my, yeah. <laughs> that's my, uh, that's my view. So that was our fascinating chat with lovely man and podcaster Joe Wisby from the Beatles Book Podcast, which is obviously available now on all good podcasting services. So go and check it out. Yeah, definitely check it out and definitely follow Joe um, at Beatles Books uh, on Instagram and Twitter because he's posts a lot of excellent Beatles content. Yeah, no, he's top draw. He's a real sort of force for good on Twitter, which uh, mm. <laughs> can be quite a sort of nasty place yes. at the best of times. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for to Joe for joining us. And um, Sorry, at Books Beatles. At Books Beatles. Okay, yeah. Let's clear that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, if you want to hear an extended version of that chat, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, you can join the gang by going to uh, patreon.com forward slash personal Beatles. Um, and if you enjoyed the show, please do give us a five star rating on Apple Music uh, or whatever it's called now, iTunes, MySpace. Uh, what is it called now? <laughs> Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Um, that's really helpful and it finds, uh, helps other people find the show and stuff. Um, so we're very, very grateful. So next week, uh, we're going to have a week off, actually. Uh, we have won't be here. Um, and we will be back in two Tuesdays' time with another fantastic episode to sort of round off the run, really. We've only got a few left, mm. but some really amazing people. So uh, hopefully see you then. Mm. Keep on beetling. Keep beetling on. Keep beetling on. <laughs> Sorry, is that our catchphrase? It keep, is now, yeah, why not? Keep on beetling or keep beetling I think last on. week I said keep beetling on. <laughs> keep beetling on. But, um, Both why good. don't we change it up? We should have a different catchphrase for every show. Both good phrases. Yeah, love it. Cheers, Robin. Cool. See you next week. Yeah, cheers, Jack. Bye. Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. 
It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. 